Hosea chapter 4. And let's begin reading in verse 1. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. And then we're going to be really just following through the remaining chapters uh, tonight and indeed next week. Uh, just to get the drift of this prophecy before moving into the book of Joel. So Hosea chapter 4 and beginning our reading in verse 1. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. Therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. As they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. And there shall be like people, like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and reward them their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase because they have left off to take heed of the Lord. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. My people ask counsel at their stocks and their staff declareth it unto them. For the spirit of whoredoms hath caused them to err and they have gone a whoring from under their God. They sacrifice upon the tops of the mountains and burn incense upon the hills under oaks and poplars and elms because the shadow thereof is good. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom and your spouses shall commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit whoredom nor your spouses when they commit adultery for themselves are separated with whores and they sacrifice with harlots. Therefore the people that doth not understand shall fall. Though thou, Israel, play the harlot, yet, not let, yet let not Judah offend, and come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Beth Haven, nor swear the Lord liveth. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is sour. They have committed whoredom continually. Her rulers with shame do love. Give ye. The wind hath bound her up in her wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifice. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. (coughs) Chapters 1 to 3, we've seen how God commanded Hosea to marry a harlot by the name of Gomer. And in so doing, he was illustrating his own relationship with Israel who had prostituted themselves by means of idolatry of the pagan religions that surrounded them. And uh, there we, we thought last week about the, uh, the first aspect of this, the pattern of Hosea, the injury to his home life. And we looked at chapters 1 to 3 and we saw how that Gomer forsook him, how that she gave herself to other men. She lived promiscuously until ultimately she winds up on the slave market and is bought back 
uh, by her husband, uh, who indeed commits himself to love her all over again. And then we said that the rest of this book focuses on the iniquity of his homeland, the injury to his home life and the iniquity of his homeland. And God speaks now to Israel as a grieving and as a hurting husband, as the remainder of the book now consists of two subjects, essentially, the rebuke of the nation of Israel and the restoration of the nation of Israel. So we're going to consider tonight together how it was that Israel uh, was denounced, uh, how Israel was desired, how Israel was described, how Israel was disciplined, and how Israel was delivered. Now, if you've read through the book, and I know from conversations with you that many of you have already read through the book, you'll surely have noticed the recurring mention of the name Ephraim. You can't miss it, 37 times in all. It appears throughout the book from chapter 4 onwards. And of course, it is a title for the nation of Israel. And it's a title that is given to them because the tribe of Ephraim were the first to introduce idolatry into the nation. And as such, they're identified primarily with a backslidden people. Notice in verse 17 of our reading, it says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. And that's what ought to have happened. The rest of the nation ought to have separated from them, left them alone and said, well, if you're going to worship idols, that's between you and God, but we're not going to go with you. But instead of doing that, the whole nation became infected. And the consequence now would be judgment from God and removal of the Jewish people from the land. And that's part of the land covenant. And that judgment would come by means of the Assyrian invasion uh, and, uh, and the northern kingdom, along with her people, would be conquered and taken captive. So let's listen now as we, uh, let's, let's listen and follow as we read in uh, how God reads the, dark, the charge sheet against uh, Israel. And the first thing I want you to think about is how Israel was denounced. In chapter 4, uh, we find three complaints against the nation of Israel. First of all, we find she was ignorant of God's word. Then we find she was idolatrous in her worship. And thirdly, we find she was immoral in her ways. Now look with me at verse 6 of our reading. It says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. And that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Now, darkness, friends, is what? Well, darkness is the removal of light. And uh, as light decreases, well, consequently, darkness increases. And that's, you know, that's pretty much, uh, you know, a statement of the obvious. But nevertheless, the idolatry that pervaded the land of Israel and its people, what came as a result of spiritual darkness and scriptural ignorance. They no longer understood who they worshipped, they no longer understood how to worship, and they no longer understood why they were worshipping. And this was evidenced in the way that they sought to assimilate idolatry alongside the worship of the Lord and brought it into their Judaism. Look in First Kings, if you will, and chapter 12. And we've, I've touched on this and referenced this already, how that after the death of Solomon, his son uh, Rehoboam comes to the throne Rehoboam is an unfit successor and the kingdom is divided and primarily given to a man by the name of Jeroboam. 
And Jeroboam recognizes a problem. He realizes that the people are going to go down to Jerusalem for the feast days. The danger was that their hearts would go with them and that they would no longer have allegiance to his kingdom and would want to unite the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah all over again. And so to, to, uh, to offset that or to indeed defend against that, Jeroboam comes up with a religion all of his own. Look here in First Kings chapter 12 and verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem, notice where he builds it, in Mount Ephraim, and dwelt therein, and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. He's fearful people will go back to Judah, and they will be then, uh, they will lose their loyalty to him. And if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel. And he made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy God. So he's, he's basically saying to Israel, Here's Jehovah. Behold thy God, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And of course you'll remember that Aaron at the foot of Sinai also uh, raised a calf. Uh, a cow, uh, and had the people worshipping around the golden calf. A very uh, popular uh, misconception of God and who God is and what God is like. And so it says, he set one of these calves up in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of high places and made priests notice of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. And so he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So Jeroboam devises this new kind of religion. It's a hybrid religion. It's a mix of Baalism and Judaism. And he thinks by marrying these two together, he can somehow pacify the Lord, satisfy the Lord in some way, and also pacify the people of, of, of Israel, of the northern kingdom, so that they have some form of worship which doesn't require them to go southward into the kingdom of Judah. And so he raises these calves, he calls out new Sabbaths, he calls for new feast days, he uh, ordains a new priesthood, and it's all patterned after the Mosaic model. But at the heart of it all was his idolatry. So idolatry was to become the hallmark of the northern nation of Israel. And by the time of Hosea, not only were the Israelites worshipping false forms of Jehovah, but they embraced every kind of idolatry, but particularly where they focused on the worship of Baal. Now people, friends, do what they do because they believe what they believe. You realize that? People do what they do because they believe what they believe. And anywhere you find people giving themselves to idolatry, you'll almost surely find them sold out to immorality. Those two things go hand in hand. That's the pattern. Ignorance, idolatry, 
immorality. And look here in chapter 4 of Hosea and verse 6 at the ignorance of this people. He says in verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. So here was a nation that had forsaken knowledge, the knowledge of the Lord. They were destroyed for lack of this knowledge. And uh, they simply had put God's word to one side. And in many ways, that's kind of reflective of where we are as a nation today. You know, I like to watch quiz shows. That's one of the things I enjoy watching. I watch all kinds of quiz shows. And uh, one, of the, you know, one of the things that always kind of gets me is when there's a Bible question, you can almost be sure that the contestant is not going to be able to answer it. It's beyond them. They can answer questions on science, geography. They can answer questions on politics, sports, fashion, movies. You name it, they can answer questions on all those things. But give them a question on the Bible. And nine times out of ten, contestants will get it wrong. Why? Because the truth of the matter is, these people in our, in our country today are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They don't have the knowledge of God's word. But it's not just in the world that people are ignorant. Here's the sad truth. They're ignorant in the church also. The church of God is largely untaught. And this is a shocking thing to me as a pastor. There are people who are sitting in the pews, even of evangelical churches, who are largely untaught and who are ignorant largely of what the Bible says. So we have a whole generation of professing Christians who don't read, uh, who have a view of Christianity that's been informed by memes and conspiracy theories and religious pop music and charismatic worship songs. And they have this syrupy view of God. It, really what they've done is they have, by means of these other medium, created a God or gods of their, own, of their own imagination. And so what you end up with is a God who's more like a boyfriend than he is like the God of the Bible. His majesty is somehow downplayed. His holiness is rarely considered. He's always Jesus, my friend, and he's, and he's always going to be kind. He's always going to be gracious. And he's always going to be loving. And there's no sense of judgment upon sin or chastening of his people or anything negative attached to him. And so instead of people falling back upon the word of God, they surround themselves with speculation and sensation and extra biblical revelation. Now I'm going to show you a little video. It's a good example, if it plays, hopefully. It's, it's a good example. <laughs> I'm always nervous when I have a video. Uh, it's a good example of what I'm talking about. So we'll take, it's just two or three minutes, but listen to this presentation. It's evidently given at some kind of Christian conference. Oh, here comes the tech man. All oh, right, okay. I did ask, and they said it would play. They all said it would play. New computer and all. Oh, you need a you need a wire pulled in. There we go. Is that it? It's not working yet. It's not working yet. Okay, give it a second. So there's our verse. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because thou hast rejected knowledge. The good thing is that Alistair gets his exercise in these moments. That's that's the only exercise he gets all week. He's sitting at a desk Monday to Friday, but come Wednesday night we give him a bit of running to do. Are we ready? Okay. Nothing's happening. 
you stay here. Oh, no. Wrong one. Go back. Oh, no. Wrong one. Wrong one. Go back to the previous. There we go. Let's try it. Stop playing. <laughs> anyway. You know what? Okay. I hope we'll resolve that when we got the new computer. But anyway, not to worry. I'll, I'll have to once again explain the video to you. All right, so basically you have a woman who's at a Christian conference of some kind. She's got a stall. And in that stall, she set up the Monster Energy drinks. And uh, she, if you're familiar with the Monster Energy drink, it has three sort of number seven type stripes down the front of it. And uh, she very confidently tells people who are coming to her table that these seven figures represent the Hebrew letter Vav. And uh, the letter Vav is numerically connected to the number six. And so she says, here's an energy drink, and on the front of it is 666. She also looks at the word monster, uh, and she points out that there's a circle with a cross on it. And uh, she points out some other things about the the packaging that are definitely wrong, that there's profanity on there, and there's other things that are are very uh, unnecessary. But anyway, uh, for our purposes, understand she's given this 666 designation by virtue of supposed Hebrew letters. And also, uh, she thinks that this uh, monster with the, the O and a cross through it is some kind of satanic symbol. And she says to the people who are listening to her, now she says, you know what, what the, is Satanism? She says, you know what the sign of Satanism is? It's an upside down cross. Now this is the best part of the movie. This is the best part of the clip. I wish I could show you this because it's so laughable. She then takes the can and she throws her head back and she holds the can upside down. Now anybody that drinks like that gets juice all over their face. But she holds the can upside down and she says, see, it's an upside down cross. Now, what she's missing is it's not an upside-down cross. It's the letter phi. It's a Greek letter. But the best part is the very, very end. You know, the people are like, wow, that's amazing. And then she looks ever so pleased with herself, and she says, well, what did Jesus say? My people perish for lack of knowledge. Well, who said it? Hosea said it. (laughs) Jesus didn't say it. And so the lady is quoting this verse. But she's assigning it to the wrong person as having said this. And I just, when I heard this, I just shook my head in, in disbelief when I saw this particular uh, video. Because, you know, it's typical of where we are today. Where Christians, instead of reading their Bibles, are reading energy drink cans and coming to conclusions based on a scant knowledge of Scripture. And then they make up a huge conspiracy theory. As though, you know, the devil's greatest work today is trying to get you to drink monster energy drinks. I mean, is that where we're at? I mean, that's crazy. So regardless of the merit of the, of the, or, the or not of the can's design, you know, if this lady just spent more time reading her Bible, less time trawling the internet, she'd probably have been a lot better off. So we need to be careful about that kind of stuff. And I'm sorry you couldn't see the video. But what happens is, what's happened in our society now is we've left the clear teaching of God's word, of God's revelation, and entered into the area of speculation and conspiracy. Now when people abandon the truth, here's what happens. They'll open themselves up just about to everything else. And the old saying is that those who stand for nothing, what? Fall for everything. And that's the reality. We see that in the church today. 
There are people who are falling for everything. And, uh, you know, Hosea is very clear here that, you know, this is a consequence of their ignorance. Look in uh, chapter 4 again, uh, verse, and verse 12. He says, My people ask counsel at their stocks, instead of seeking the word of God, and their staff declareth it unto them. For the spirit of whoredoms have caused them to err. They're looking for other means, uh, other points of reference. They've gone a whoring from under their God. What was the consequence? Idolatry, they sacrificed upon the tops of the mountains, and burn incense upon the hills, under oaks and poplars and elms, because the shadow thereof is good. Therefore your daughters shall commit whoredom, your spouses shall commit adultery. Verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. And again, we see that in our own land. We see that ignorance has birthed idolatry, that ignorance has birthed false belief systems. You know, if you, if you think about right now, Christianity has been abandoned in our country for all kinds of Eastern religion, all kinds of spirituality so-called. You know, we now have a prime minister installed who's a Hindu. And, uh, you know, he was one week in office, literally one week, his first week in office in 10 Downing Street. He was celebrating the Hindu festival of Diwali. He invited all the Hindus in and he was lighting candles to the Hindu gods right, in the, right at the heart of our government. And, uh, you know, as far as our king goes, he was in office, you know, just a matter of uh, 10 days. What did he do? He invited the leaders of 30 different faith groups to come. And uh, he began to assure them that he was on their side. In the words of Lord Singh of Wimbledon, himself a Sikh believer, uh, he, he, he has known the king for many years. He's a personal friend of the king. And he told a briefing after this meeting that the king, quote, sees faith more broadly than looking at looking through it from one perspective of one religion. Faith really refers to commitment to an ultimate real reality. And that cannot be accommodated by any one religion. No one religion has a monopoly of truth. And I believe that is the way King Charles sees it. And so you see these images of our Prime Minister doing just what I spoke about, lighting his, these candles to these idols, and our King now meeting with all of these faith groups. And essentially, although he's promised in his oath of office uh, to be the defender of the faith, he did that purely because he was legally required to do it. He, there was no way out, of him, out for him to do anything else if he was to become King. But there's no question that when he did it, he did it with a heavy heart. And when he did it, he would much have preferred to have been called the defender of faiths. That's what's on his heart. King Charles is a pluralist. He's not a Christian. And our prime minister is an idolater and is certainly not a Christian. And that's where our nation is going. Ignorance goes hand in hand with idolatry. And idolatry, whether it's the worship of gods or of animals or of men, in all of its forms, births immorality. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing, and lying, and killing, and stealing, and committing adultery, they break out, and blood toucheth blood. Verse 11, whoredom, and wine, and new wine, take away the heart. Look at chapter 5 and verse 3. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now Ephraim, now committest whoredom, 
and Israel is defiled. And so if you look at the, the problems in the nation, no truth, no mercy, no knowledge of God, uh, swearing and dishonesty and killing and stealing and marital infidelity and violence and drunkenness and promiscuity. These were blights on ancient Israel's society. And it came as a consequence of ignorance of the word of God, of hearts given to idolatry, and really just bowing to that which is false without knowing the true God. You know, this, and these things are evident in our own society. You know, we're living in a society where people find it difficult to speak the truth. In fact, we say truth is relative. You have your truth, I have my truth. You know, that may well work in some philosophical parallel universe, but it doesn't work in real life because truth is truth. You know, if I throw you off a cliff and say, that's my truth, but it's not your truth, I think you'll still hit the bottom. (laughs) It's not going to be good, is it? So notice then how Israel was desired. We've talked about how Israel was denounced. Let's think now about how Israel was desired. Let's go to chapter 6 and verse 1. Chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Come and let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn and will he, he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and he, we shall live in his sight. Then shall you know if you follow on to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared in the morning. And he shall come unto us as the rain. As the latter and former rain unto the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud. And as the early dew it goeth away. Now here's the thing we ought to get from the book of Hosea. That despite the sins of the ancient Israel... God still loved her. This is Hosea's story. That's what chapters 1 to 3 are all about. That's why God told Hosea to marry Gomer as a sermon illustration uh, in, order to, uh, in order to underscore his own affection and love for his wife, for his people. No matter how Gomer strayed, no matter how she treated uh, Hosea, still he sought her. Still he loved her. Still he was willing to go down to the marketplace and redeem her. He wanted her back more than anything. So just as Hosea previously had played with Gomer, so now the prophet speaks on God's behalf uh, and speaks to men, calling them to repentance, to return to the Lord. And he says, although the Lord will tear us, although he will judge us, his goal is not to leave us there. He will ultimately heal us. Though he hath smitten us, though he will wound us, his ultimate goal is to bind us up, is to, is to bind up those wounds. Notice in, in verse 2 also of chapter 6, there's a little prophecy there uh, pertaining to the Lord Jesus. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. That's pointing forward to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 3, Then shall we, what? Know. If we follow on to know the Lord. Now, what's the answer to ignorance? The answer to ignorance is knowledge. And so God says there's certain things that you're going to have to know. And the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1 and 7. So until people know the Lord, they're really not in a place to know anything in terms of spirituality 
or in terms of religion. Uh, you know, knowledge, the knowledge of God is critical to our understanding of who God is and who we are and, and what salvation is. Outside of Christianity, there is no hope. None. Whatever religion you point at, you know, the, the Prince Charles might, say, might think that, you know, no one religion holds the truth, but Prince, or King Charles is wrong. He's wrong. So what's happened is we've become so ignorant as a nation, and this is where we've gotten to. We can no longer define what a woman is. That's how ignorant we are as a nation. We can no longer tell what a woman is in our country. And you and I stand there with our Bibles, knowing the creation story, knowing that God made man, male and female, and we stand scratching our heads in disbelief and thinking to ourselves, how can these people even debate this? This is not something that is up for grabs. This is not something controversial. This is not something debatable. It's not something that we should be arguing over. This is, a, this is an obvious thing. There are men and there are women. There are males and there are females. But we have politicians in our country who say that they cannot define what a woman is. And they're leaders of major parties. You see, darkness and increase and ignorance will only increase unless we turn back to God. And what our nation needs, friends, is revival. We need the gospel. That's the only, that's the only pill that will cure this world's ill, the gospel. <laughs> that's it. What did Paul say? He said of the end times that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And that's where we're at. People are deceiving and being deceived. You know, there's a whole generation of young people who are going through our university system now who are being deceived. They're being educated in the field of their choice. But along the way, there's enough deception to convince them of this idea of wokeism and many of the ideas that it brings with it which are counter to biblical Christianity. So by calling people to repentance, Hosea led the nation in a repentant confession of their problems. And just as it was for them, so it is for us. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, God says, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. 2 Chronicles 7.14 So, um, Hosea says the Lord will come to them and to us like the rain. In verse 3, he says he'll come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain upon the earth. You know, in Israel, the only crops, that, that the only means they had of watering their crops was rain. They relied on rain. They looked for rain. They prayed for rain. And so, uh, you know, they, a farmer would, would look to the skies constantly. Once he had, you know, was wanting to sow a seed, he's looking to the skies constantly to try and soften the soil, to allow him to plow and plant the seed. And when it comes time for harvest, he's looking for the rain again. He's looking for a second drop of rain uh, in order to get a harvest. And so the Bible says this is God's blessing upon the people. And God says essentially, look, I love you. I want you to repent. I want you to come back and return on to me. And if you'll do that, I'll bless you. I'll bless your harvest. Now remember, Baal is a fertility God. The God they're worshiping is the God they're trusting in to deliver a, a prime harvest. But God says, listen, he's not your answer. I'm your answer. If you turn to me, I'll bless and heal your land. 
Look at his great desire in verse 4. He says, O Ephraim, and I love this, what shall I do unto thee? Do you ever say to your kids in exasperation, what am I going to do with you? Do you ever say that to them? Of course, we've all said that, haven't you? If some child just keeps repeating the mistake over and over again, you look at it, what am I going to do with you? But when you say that, you already know what you're going to do. <laughs> you know what you're, how you're going to punish them if there's a punishment required. And you also have hope that the child is not going to remain in its folly. That he or she will turn from it and be corrected. And so it is with the Lord. It wasn't that there were no faithful people uh, in, the, in the midst of, Jude, of, of all the Judaism uh, of ancient Israel. There were some. Uh, but, you know, there were, but nevertheless, you know, just following, going through the motions, doing the sacrifices, marking the feast days, you know, they thought, well, that'll, that'll please the Lord. That'll suffice him. And the Lord says, what am I to do with you? Look what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9. Sorry, before you go there, look at verse 6 of chapter 6. He says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God says, I don't want your religion. I don't care what label is on your religion. I don't care what covering it comes in. I don't care what the jacket says. You know, dead religion is just that. It's dead religion. God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your burnt offerings. I don't want you going through the motions of religion. I don't want your feast days. I don't want you just doing what you have to do to get by. He says, I want more than that. He says, I desire mercy. I desire the knowledge of God. I want intimacy. I want you to know me. And the Lord Jesus said the same thing to the leaders of his day in, uh, in Israel. Chapter uh, 9 of Matthew and, and uh, <coughs> verse 11. <coughs> Let's read verse 10 actually. It said, It came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's the truth tonight. The Lord Jesus didn't come to call righteous people. He didn't come just to deal with religious people. He came to deal with people whose lives are a mess. He came to deal with people who are drug addicts and drunkards and liars and thieves and, and blasphemers. He came to bring salvation to people like that. He came to die on a cross that you could be delivered from your sin, that you could live a life that is absolutely liberating and joyous in Jesus Christ. You see, you don't have to remain as you are. Christ came, not for, the, not for the righteous, but for sinners. Not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so he'd rather have mercy than sacrifice. He'd rather show you mercy than deal with your sacrifices. He'd rather, he'd rather indeed that you have the knowledge of God than go through the motions of religion. Now, I want you to see how Israel was described as we close out this evening. And we're going to run through a, a series of little chain references tonight from this point on. You know, by a series of object lessons, 
God portrays the sin and the attitude of the state of nation, shows them to be backslidden. And notice how he describes them. The first thing he describes them as is a backslidden heifer. Look in chapter 4 and verse 16. He says, For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now, what does that mean? Now, you, we've got a couple of uh, cattle farmers in here tonight, so I, I'm a city boy. I'm going to take my chances on this, all right? Uh, but, all right, you need to be quiet, please. Okay, if you can be quiet, please, appreciate it. All right, um, so if you look at chapter 11 and verse 4, he says, I drew them, speaking of Israel or Ephraim, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. Now, I've seen this with my own eyes. And I'm sure you farmers have experienced it. You know, you've got the farmer at the front. He's got the rope around the front of the cow. He's trying to get it onto a trailer. And he's, and he's pulling and like crazy. And what's the animal doing? The wee calf is, is pulling back. He's pulling back. He doesn't want to go in. And then you get a couple of the boys behind it on the rear end. And, and they're pushing. And the farmer's pulling. And they're trying to get it onto the trailer. Have you seen that? Or is that just me? Is that a Belfast thing? Don't think it is. But anyway, uh, so, you, so you get the picture. And that's what, that's what Israel described as, is this heifer who's fighting against God, who refuses to be pulled with the cords of love into the, into the trailer, as it were, into the, into the safety of God's love and salvation. And so the, the images of this animal backing away, withdrawing from the yoke, refusing to be uh, tamed in that sense. So the Lord was pulling the nation with cords of love, but she was refusing to be married to him. Israel refused to have the yoke of God upon her. And yet we know that in the world people are exactly the same. People don't want God. People don't want Jesus. People don't want the Bible. They're resisting the truth of God. They'd rather go anywhere else usually than church. And so in that respect, there's no difference between the people in our society and the people in ancient Israel. Both were resistant to God's drawing of his love. And, you know, and you think even in that respect, you know, the illustration of Gomer and what happens in the end. You know, Gomer ends up standing in the slave market of sin. She ends up standing there washed up naked and ashamed. And that's what the world does with people. The world washes people up and throws them out. But we know that in contrast to that, the Lord's yoke is easy. Matthew chapter 11, you know it well. Come on to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. You know, Solomon said this in the book of Proverbs, that great book of wisdom. He says, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. You see, that's the truth. Israel were facing sorrow because they had forsaken the blessing of the Lord. But if they would accept the blessing of the Lord, if they would yield to him, then they would find that there was a richness to their relationship with him. So he says they're a backsliding heifer in verse, chapter 4, 16. For chapter 7 and verse 4, he describes them as an overheated oven. An interesting analogy. Chapter 7 and verse 4. He says, For they have made ready their heart like an oven. Whilst they lie in the wait, their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. So now the people are portrayed as being inflamed with their sin, with their lust, with their desire, with their passion for idols. And they're like the coals of a freshly stoked fire. 
ready to break bread. Along the same vein, same chapter, he describes them as a cake half turned. Verse 8. Ephraim, uh, he hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. You know, uh, do you ever ever put your toast in? You forget to flip it over. (laughs) What happens? One side's black and then you lift it out and you go, oh, that's useless. And it's into the bin. You can't use it. And what's the problem? You've got one problem, one side's turned toward the grill, the other side's turned away from the grill. And that was a picture of Israel. On the one hand, they were turning to the Lord, believing that they were engaged in some form of Judaism. But on the other hand, they're turned away from the Lord, giving themselves to the worship of Baal. And God says, you're, you're unusable, you're inedible, you, you, you're not serving your purpose. Uh, you know, friends, God will never share his glory with another. He never will. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. He says you can't put something else into the mix. It's either God and God or it's God and nothing. It's either Christ and Christ or it's Christ and nothing. You can't have Jesus and put something else in there. The Lord will never enter into a polygamous arrangement with men. He demands first place. So he calls them a cake half turned because they haven't turned to the Lord. Then he refers to them as an aging man. Chapter 7 and verse 9. He says, Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. With every passing day, as a consequence of their idolatry, the nation was being weakened, much like an aging man. You know, you don't, as you're getting older, you don't realize your strength is passing from you until you try to do some things that you used to do without any problem at all, like getting off your knees. <laughs> you know, when I'm uh, cleaning out the fire and, you know, raking out the ashes and, and I'm on my knees, then getting up again isn't as, I'm not as sprightly as I used to be. <laughs> I have to grab the top of the, uh, of the, of the hearth and, or the, uh, the fireplace and pull myself up. You know, and, and we've probably all been there. You know, you, you, you run for a bus or whatever and you find you're not as... You're not as young as you are not as young as you used to be. You find your stamina isn't what it once was. You know, we sing a little children's chorus. I don't know if you sing it here, but we used to sing this week chorus that says, "The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore." There's been a great change since I've been born again. Have you heard that wee chorus? No, I gotta teach you that one. That's a great one. Anyway, uh, but it's true. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. Now that's positively true on a spiritual level, but it's negatively true on a physical level. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. You know, I used to love playing football. I loved playing football. Uh, would, have, would have went anywhere for a game of football. Enjoyed right up until I was about 54 years of age. I was playing football. And then on my last game of playing football, I was out playing five-a-side with a bunch of young fellas. And uh, the ball came my direction. And my head said, run. And my leg said, are you kidding me? <laughs> And that was when I gave it up because I realized I couldn't be competitive anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't offer anything to the game. And uh, I know it's, that's just how it is with age. And, and the illustration that God uses is of your hairs here and there. The gray hairs are here and there upon him. You know, I, believe it or not, I used to have a head of hair like Matthew's. Nice dark hair. And uh, that's, that's what you've got to look forward to, Matthew. Don't worry, you can have a, you can have a head like, like Alistair there. Alistair's head reminds me of heaven. There's no parting over there. But anyway, uh, but, but anyway, 
Um, but actually, have a dark head of hair like, like uh, Matthew. But what I didn't realize was there were gray hairs here and there. And then there comes a day you look in the mirror and it's pretty much all gray. And you're like, how in the world did that happen? How did that happen? And it's just aging. And what God is saying is with the passage of time and their commitment to idolatry, the nation is weakening spiritually like an aged man. They're grinding down. Then he describes them in chapter 7 and verse 11 as a silly dove. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. You know, Israel had looked at one point to Egypt to possibly be an ally with them against the Assyrians. They'd even tried to pacify the Assyrians, entering into allegiance with them of sorts. It became almost a fossil state of of Assyria. Uh, But, you know, none of that would stay God's judgment hand. God had determined that Assyria would be the judgment tool that he would use against them. And so he compares their wooing of the Egyptians to a silly bird, a lovebird, fluttering around without direction. He says, look at them. They're going over there to the Assyrians. Now they're going over here to the Egyptians. They don't even know what direction they're going. They're like a silly dove. You know, they think they can escape God by running here and there. But God says, when they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. Verse 12. Then he describes them as a crooked bow. Chapter 7 and verse 16. He says, um, they, they return, but not to the Most High. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Now, obviously, a crooked bow. If you have a crooked bow, you can't shoot, shoot straight. A crooked bow always misses God's target. And that's indeed what Paul essentially teaches in Romans 3 and 23. All of sin and what? Comes short of the glory of God. God sets a standard. The standard is his glory. This glory is found in a person. That person is Jesus Christ. If you're going to get to heaven, you have to live up to the standard of Jesus Christ. But every time man tries to live to that standard, what happens? He falls short. He's got a crooked bow. No matter how he aims at it, he's always going to come up short. And that's the picture God paints of ancient Israel. The Israelites were missing the mark. Then look at the next chapter, chapter 8 and verse 8. They're described as a useless pot. He says in verse 8 of chapter 8, Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles as a vessel or a pot wherein there is no pleasure. So you think back to the story of Hosea and Gomer and how Gomer was used and abused by her lovers. And when they were done with her, they just cast her aside and she was put out on the marketplace as a slave. Well, Israel at one point sought to befriend Assyria, but far from gaining her respect, ultimately she was cast away by the Assyrians as their lover. And like a useful pot now, she's ready to be overthrown or repurposed. Israel's overtures toward the Assyrians were of little use. So she sits among the nations now as a broken pot. You know, what use is a broken pot? It's no use to anybody. And that was the point. Israel's no use to man or beast. Israel's just sitting there waiting to be conquered. Then he describes her as another animal, a wild donkey. Chapter 8 and verse 9. It says, For they are gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. Ephraim hath hired lovers. Now this, the donkey we know is a is a naturally stubborn creature. But this is a particular type of donkey. It's a donkey known in the Middle East as the onager. 
And it's a very isolated and untamable creature. Look in uh, Job, the book of Job, if you will, where God points Job to the character of the onager. Job chapter 39. Job chapter 39. And let's begin verse 5. God says to Job, Who hath sent out the wild ass free? Or who hath loosed the bands of the wild ass? Whose house I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwellings. He scorneth the multitude of the city. Neither regardeth he the crying of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture, and he searcheth after every green thing. Now notice the characteristics of this animal that God is now pointing to as being descriptive of Israel in her rebellion. He says of her that she is one that lives in, notice, the wilderness, the barren land, and the mountains. And that's exactly where an onager lives. It lives on the steppes, the savannas, the grasslands, the shrublands, mountain ranges. You, if, you try to, if you try to capture one and train one, you, know, you think, well, I'll get that donkey and I'll, I'll do, I'll do uh, pony rides on the beach or donkey rides on the beach. It's not going to happen. That animal is not coming with you no matter what. It's not coming into the city. It's not going to be tamed. It lives alone. It's isolated. It's a solitary uh, figure out in the wilderness. And that's how Israel is being portrayed. Israel is being described as having no friends in the world. She hasn't succeeded in her allegiance with Egypt. She hasn't won over the, the Assyrians with her overtures. She's waiting now to be conquered. She's looking for help. Instead of looking to the Lord, she's looking around. And God says, you're like the wild ass. You're all on your own in the wilderness. A wild donkey. She's a dried up root. Look at Hosea chapter 9. Verse 16. Hosea chapter 9 and verse 16. Ephraim is smitten. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. You know, one of the reasons, as I mentioned earlier, that Israel worshipped Baal was because Baal was the fertility god. They thought that by worshipping this pagan god, they could increase their crops, that their fruit would be, fruit harvest would be more successful, and, and so on. And God reminded them that that wasn't going to happen, that he's the provider of every good thing, and that their willfulness in rejecting him in favor of these other gods would result in him turning their harvest into barrenness. Their crops would die at the root. Look back to chapter 2, if you will. In verses 8 and 9, we go back into that first section where uh, Hosea is set up as an example of the Lord's love uh, for Israel. In uh, chapter 2, in verses 8 and 9, he says, For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will recover my wool and my flex given to cover her nakedness. God says you're like a dried up root. You might as well not even bother with the harvest. I'm not blessing you. And then finally in chapter 10 and verses 1 and 2, we see that she's an empty vine. Israel is an empty vine, says the scripture. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of the land, they have made goodly images. Their heart is divided. 
Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. You know, the idea here of an empty vine is one that perhaps, I hope, triggers uh, the Olivet Discourse in your mind. In Matthew chapter 24, if you want to, if you actually go to Matthew chapter 21 to begin with. Because when you read about this empty vine, a vine that brings no fruit, it kind of reminds me of the, of the fig tree. You remember the story of the fig tree in, in Matthew chapter 21? The Lord Jesus uh, is coming out of Bethany. And uh, he's returned home and he's going, to, he's going to go back to the city. It says, verse 18, Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only. And said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? And later on, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, in his Olivet Discourse, uh, tells his, those who are listening to him in verse 32 to learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and putteth forth his, lips, you know, his leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the door. So here's the deal. The fig tree is a very unusual plant in that it produces fruit before it produces leaves. So if you see leaves on a fig tree, you're almost always guaranteed fruit on that fig tree. And so a fig tree with leaves is a fig tree that has a measure of promise. It's telling you there's fruit to be had here. Now the Lord Jesus had just come into, uh, into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The people had hailed him as their Messiah. They cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. There was great promise that the kingdom was coming. It looked good. The leaves were there. But he knew that in a matter of a few days, those people would be crying, crucify him. And there would be no fruit to that worship. So here's the picture. These pink painting of Israel. It's an empty vine. It's a land and a nation that promised much. But was delivering little. Delivering nothing actually. And was worthy of God's judgment. So judgment was closer to them than they had ever realized. And that's what chapter 10 and verse 2 is telling them. Having described them as an empty vine, God says, now they shall be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. God is coming for them. And the Lord Jesus said the same thing essentially. In Matthew's gospel, he basically says, when you see the fig tree... Uh, and you realize it's putting forth its leaves. When you see Israel back in the land, when you see the nation functioning yet again, he says, that's the leaves. I've resurrected the nation. But this time there's going to be fruit because he's planning to come again to salvage the nation, to save the nation, and to establish his kingdom. So just like uh, the people in, in Hosea's day were described as an empty vine ripe for the judgment, so the nation of Israel was judged at the time of Christ, for 2,000 years, they were nowhere to be found on the earth. But now the leaves have come forth again on the, on, the, uh, on, the, on the vine, on the tree. And we're prepared now for the coming of the Lord and certain judgment upon mankind. Earlier on in this passage, God had asked them, What shall I do unto thee? What shall I do unto thee? What am I going to do with you? Well, what does any parent do with a wayward child? He disciplines them. 
and he seeks to correct them. And then he loves them. And that's precisely what God will do. And we'll see that as we pick up our study next week. We'll see how that ultimately God's intent is to deliver them and to save the nation. So we'll leave it there for this evening.